I feel like I'm halfway here, I will admit. So let's take the Trinity Hymn Book. Trinity Hymn Book and turn to number 50. 50 in the Trinity. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Father, 
that you would uphold your church, that we would go more finally with the confidence of our Lord and Savior who has promised us you will never leave us or forsake us. May we never be shaken, but may our confidence be upon Christ. We pray that you would help us to walk circumspectly according to your word and according to the teachings and precepts of our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We're in, excuse me, we're in Ecclesiastes 10 uh, this week. We took last week off. This chapter is very sounds very much like the book of Proverbs. Um, several uh, different topics are addressed. Um, the first one is a very important one, and that is to remember that our lives have an aroma. Not a physical aroma, but an aroma nonetheless. And it only takes... One bit of folly to make your life stink uh, in the eyes of eyes of others. So he reminds us of that in verse one. In verse two is an interesting verse that a wise man's heart is toward his right or at his right hand. In the old King James, a fool's heart is at his left. And those words for right and left. You remember I told you that Hebrew has gender. These are nouns, right and left, are nouns. Can you guess which gender is at the right and which one is at the left? It's a trick question because I would have guessed wrong. It is the uh, the right hand is a feminine noun. You'll be glad to know. And the uh, left is a masculine noun. That's all I can say about that verse. (laughs) You're wise people. Because he follows it up in verse 3. When a fool walks along the road, his uh, sense is lacking. He demonstrates, literally, he says to everyone uh, that he is a fool. So he's not walking around saying, hey, I'm, I'm a fool. But his life is saying that. You know, that's the aroma, if you will, that he's giving off. And then down as we go through, there's some advice, uh, as was in, we saw in the book of Proverbs, advice for how to respond uh, to uh, those who govern. There's advice about work and the risks, risks involved in, in work and There's advice to would-be entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm forgetting which verse that was. We'll come to it, and I'll stop. (laughs) And then uh, toward the end there, he talks again about the blessing of the land. We heard about uh, blessings um, this morning, and he talks about a blessing here. That's when your king is not a child. He is a son of nobles. And your leaders don't eat for pleasure. 
but they eat at the proper time. That's the blessed land. And then <clears throat> a word about uh, laziness there in verse 18. I like verse 19. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers all. I'm reading the old uh, King James. I think it's a good uh, rendering of that. It's not saying that money is the answer to all things. It's saying that for everything you see, even the air you're breathing, if you're breathing in a building <laughs> because it is processed through air, air conditioning or heating, it costs money. Everything has a corresponding uh, monetary value. As you walked through the line today to get your food, you didn't see it, but there were little invisible price tags. Everything has a value. And your clothes that you're wearing, the glasses uh, on your face, the hair color <laughs> that you have um, has a price tag. And so that's important advice, especially with young men. You know, <laughs> I had such a misspent youth, I had no concept that I needed to be getting ready for life because everything has a corresponding monetary value. The, the car, the house, the, the wife, the rings, the, uh, yeah, you name it. So keep that in mind. That's a great, great verse. And then keep your thoughts. Don't even curse the king in your thought. So just with those uh, brief things, let's go on down through it. I'll be reading from the <clears throat> NASB 95 this time. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. It'll wipe it out. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If the ruler's temper or spirit rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure or yielding pacifies great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. <clears throat> If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. In the beginning of his talk, the beginning of his talking is folly. And the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him. Here's the verse I was looking for. The toil of a fool so wearies him 
that he does not even know how to go to the city. So for you would-be entrepreneurs, marketing is key. You might have good product, but if you don't know how to go to the city and market it, it will weary you. 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. I believe those verses go together, 17 and 18. We can be lazy as a nation, indolent. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer to everything. I don't like the way uh, the NASB rendered that. This money answers all is the way it reads. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. In your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound and the winged creature will make the matter known. Well, take your Trinity hymn books again and turn to number 280, 280 in the Trinity hymn book, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. Let's stand as we sing.
seated. First Thessalonians chapter three. First Thessalonians chapter three. I will confess that I have not um, been in this text a, a long time. As far as the one this morning, I meditated and thought and, and carried it with me all week long. It's not the same case for this one. Uh, as I was praying and seeking what I might encourage you with this afternoon, uh, this text came to mind. And so I thought we would look at it together. And so I guess I'm saying I pray that this dish that I just got out of the oven doesn't give you indigestion, but that you will find some nourishment from it uh, this afternoon. When we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to look at Paul's prayer there at the end of this chapter, verses 11 to 13. You will, you will note that if you study the book of 1 Thessalonians, that the Apostle Paul has been defending himself from the slander of his enemies. And he's setting before his readers the fact that he and Silas and Timothy have acted toward these people in a sincere and honest way. Now, having finished that defense of his ministry, the apostle now is ready to move on to other concerns, and especially the concerns that he has for the people of God there at Thessalonica, that they would be found complete. You'll see there in verse 10, he mentions that reality as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what was lacking of your faith. So Paul has not known these folks very long. He wasn't able to stay there very long. But because of the opposition, had to leave. And he's concerned for them. As babes in Christ, he wants to see them growing. He wants to see them complete in their faith. And therefore, what does he do? He prays. He prays for them. And we have recorded for us how he prays for them. And I believe that as Paul prays for them, it is a prayer that we can imitate for each other, for this assembly. And so we read there, starting in verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in your love for one another and for all the people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints." What we find here is Paul is praying for three things in particular for this church there at Thessalonica. The first thing he prays for is for guidance or direction. The second thing he prays for is love and increase in love. 
And the third thing he prays for is for their faithfulness. So at the coming of Christ, they would not be ashamed. And I think those are three important things that we as a church ought to desire and that we as a church ought to ever be growing in for His guidance and direction to show us our paths for our love for each other and then for faithfulness until Christ comes again or God takes us home. And so with that in mind, I just want to open them up briefly for you this afternoon. So first of all, Paul prays for guidance or direction. We see that here in verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. The report that... Taking care of it, it's on its own there, Tommy Sue. The report that Timothy gave to Paul only gave Paul a greater desire to see these folks again. To spend time with them. To be a benefit to them. He tells them that, that he's made it even a matter of prayer. He's asked God that he might be able to come among them again and see them face to face. This is not the only time that, that he's mentioned that. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, in chapter 3 and verse 6, it, it is his prayer to see these dear people again. But so far, God has answered with no. Not yet. But he continues to pray. And, and he doesn't let the reality that up to this point, it's not come to pass. He doesn't let that hinder him. He still makes it a request before his God. Now notice exactly who he addresses. He addresses God, our God, and our Father, himself, Jesus, our Lord. There's two things that would keep him praying. Number one, God was his father. And he knows a father cares for his children. And he knows that a father knows how to give good gifts. So as he's praying for direction and a desire to see these individuals again, he knows he's asking someone who, who really cares for him. And therefore he can trust that how he answers is for the best. Isn't that how Christ taught us to pray? He said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father. Be reminded that God is not a distant God. He is a Father who loves and cares for His own. And then He says, Jesus our Lord. There's the recognition that Jesus is my master. And as one who's my master and who's my Lord, then I must submit to His will. Sometimes we ask God for things and it doesn't come to pass the way that we would like to see it come to pass. 
And sometimes when that happens, we might find ourselves grumbling and complaining. Or sometimes, though we may not say it out loud, inwardly we think, I still think I have a better idea. I still think this is a better thing to happen. And and we might find ourselves saying, God, why doesn't this go this way? But we have to recognize that He is Lord. He's in control. And we must trust Him. And we are dependent upon Him. And we need to submit to Him. I find it interesting when people go through difficulties... And when they come out on the other side, and if it's a positive ending, you've got someone who's very sick, uh, everybody thinks they're going to die in the next few days, and then they're restored to health. What do people say? God answered prayer. And I understand what they're saying, but if that person wasn't healed, And that person died. Did God still answer prayer? Now, we don't say that. I don't walk into a hospital room with a family whose loved one just died and said, man, God just answered our prayers. But He did. And He knows what's best. And we have to submit to Him. Even though the answer may not be what we might desire it to be. We are, with both terminology, God our Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, it is language of dependence. We are a people dependent upon God and, and how He's pleased to answer and what He's pleased to do. And isn't that the lesson? Let's look over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, familiar passage of Scripture. James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Here we have an individual who says, Come now, you who say, Today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I want you to notice in this passage what our Lord commends. Or or we might say, what does He condemn? It is not honest initiative that our Lord condemns here. It's not hard work 
Or it's not even making a profit. He, he doesn't condemn those things. He doesn't condemn this man because he, he has a, a, a work model that he's going off of. He doesn't condemn the man because he plans and knows exactly where he ought to go in order to sell or, or make business in, in whatever commodity he, he's, he's out to, to set before people. He, he doesn't condemn him because he wants to make a profit. There's nothing wrong with making a profit, nothing wrong with with making money. So that's not what he's condemned. What what is he he's condemned? What he's condemned is he's done all this without any recognition of God and his dependence upon God. You see he has a plan. He looks to the future. What he thinks is going to happen. I'm going to this city or that one. One can imagine him pouring over a map, always thinking about his next stop. He has this plan. He's going to a specific place and and there he's going to sell his wares. And he he even has a, a period of time. I'm going to stay there for a year. And then he... Assumes he's going to make money. We will do this. And we will do that. But never really giving thought of his dependence upon God. We should say, again, make plans, but with those plans, if the Lord wills. Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You may plan to get up in the morning and feel fine. We were, Friday night, we were so excited. Abel's fourth birthday party. Nothing like a four-year-old birthday party. With baseball as the theme. And, 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 and a boy, he was going to get a tea from one set of grandparents. And he was going to get a bat and ball from another set of grandparents. And we were all set and ready to go. And at 5.30 in the morning, my wife gets up and is very wobbly. And, and I said, what's going on? And she has to lay back down. And, and, and she immediately says, I've got to get better. We've got the party to go to. And so about 9.30, when it was obvious, <laughs> she wasn't going to a party. And she wanted me to go without her. And that wasn't going to happen. She said, but we've got, no, we can't. But we had planned this. And now my poor grandson's going to have a tea, but no bat and ball because the grandparents with the bat and ball aren't going to get there. So the kid's going to look at a tea. Well, this is fun. (laughs) Our plans were wiped out. By the way, my son is taking the bat and ball home with him tonight, so the tea will have something to play besides it. But, but we need to pray for God's guidance, God's direction in, in, in all things and say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. How often do we go about our day without recognizing our need for God's direction and guidance? Mr. Blanchard in his commentary on in his commentary on 
James says this. What he is telling them is that the right attitude to life is to recognize that God is in sovereign control of it all and that it should be yielded in humble submission to His divine will. That we should be humbly yielded and submitted to His divine will. And so he prays for guidance, and that's what we need to do. We need to be a people that pray for guidance. Secondly, he prays for their love. Going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, verse 12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in your love for one another. For all the people, just as we do for you. So he prays that they would increase in their love for each other. You know, the one phrase that's repeated, you know, years ago I did a series of messages on the one another's. You know, we ought to wait on one another. We ought to pray for one another. And, and you know what? The one one another that's repeated more than any other of the one another commands, we ought to love one another. Love each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. John tells us, if if you say you love God, and yet you do not love your brother, you're a liar. And the truth isn't in you. We ought to have a genuine love for each other. And, and, and that genuine love ought to be expressed in the way that we treat one another. You know, oftentimes, church people are, are, are the quickest to criticize, to talk evil of each other. We're quick to see each other's warts. And we're quick to give our opinion about something that really isn't none of our business. But we've got to get in there and let them know. Love seeketh not its own. Love seeks the good of others. Paul puts it this way. That, that we ought to consider others more important than ourselves. We ought to seek to love each other in a way that we can come along beside each other and care for one another. If, if a stranger came into this assembly and saw how we behave towards each other, what would be their conclusion about Christianity and about the people of God and their relationship to each other? We ought to do our best to live at peace with one another and to love each other. And so I ask you, what's been the demonstration in this past week that you love the brethren? 
How has your love for the brethren been demonstrated this past week? And, and you may say, well, I haven't seen the brethren throughout the week. And, and maybe that's right. I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of meetings. I remember growing up in the Fundamental Baptist Church, we had meetings every night for something. Visitation, prayer meeting, youth time, children something. I mean, every night of the week. We don't have that. And, and, and I tell people, <laughs> I tell people the one thing you need, unique about this congregation is we come from the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west. Nobody comes from here. It seems that way. So we don't live close to each other. So how have we demonstrated our love for one another? I mean, I, I appreciate the fellowship that we have. I, I love the fact that when we gather together, when I say amen, I don't open my eyes and see people scattering toward the exit, which happens in many churches. I have people that ask me, do these people go home sooner or later? And I'm glad for that, but, but how about during the week? What are we doing to demonstrate our love for each other? It could be just a note. And nowadays it could be just a text, even though I got on you this morning about staying on those phones too much, but it could be just a simple text. Hey man, thinking about you prayed for you this morning. I, I had someone write me this week and, and just a simple text, and that's what it said. It said, Hey, I just appreciate you, brother. And I want you to know I'm praying for you. And you know what my response was? My response wasn't. I don't have time to read my phone and my text. Come on. No, it encouraged me. It, gave, it, it was that shot in the arm. I, I had another, I don't know, maybe I look like I needed courage. I had another brother this week come and put his arm around me and say, and, and, and he said to me, you are a gift. I'm like, wow. How long did that take? What are we doing to show our love for each other? I trust we're doing that. And we want to grow in that. Now, I know, if you're like me, when I grew up, the word love <laughs> was hardly ever heard in our home. I think the first time I remember saying to my mom, I love you, and this is to my shame, was when she dropped me off at college. And there, I was a bit scared. I'm in South Carolina. She's going back to Indiana. And so I, I love you. And, 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 you know, I had two brothers and I have a sister. And, and you know, we didn't express that love. I'm not saying you have to express that love. But, boy, there, there's something that's encouraging to hear somebody say, you know what, brother? I love you. I love you. And as we grow in our love for Christ, we ought to grow in our love for each other. It ought to be that which marks our lives. So we're praying for direction and guidance and dependence upon God. We're praying that our love would increase towards one another. And then finally, he prays for their faithfulness. That they would be found blameless. You see, something of Paul's mindset, 
Paul's mindset was for the future. He, he knew that, that Christ was coming again. He, he said, we don't know the day or the hour. He said, he's going to come like a thief in the night. And we're not sure. But, but he's concerned about the future. And when Christ comes again, he mentions it in chapter 1 and verse 10 and chapter 2 and verse 19. And his desire was that these believers would be able and ready to meet their Lord. He wants them to stand without shame or fear. His expressed desire is that the saints would, would love each other and that and God, and it has a bearing upon the way they live in light of Christ's return. In Matthew chapter 25, we won't turn there. You can look it up later. Some of you are familiar with it. There are two parables that speak of the issue of the Lord's return. One is the ten virgins that speak about the need to be prepared for when He returns. And the other, the parable of the talents, has the idea of faithfulness, being faithful that when He returns, you are found faithful on that day. And both of these parables are addressed to the professing church. And both give great encouragement to be prepared, to be faithful in light of the return of Christ. But they also give sober warnings in light of the return of Christ. And so Paul is, he says, my prayer for you, dear people at Thessalonica who I love and long to see face in face, is that you will live your life in light of His return. How often do we do that? There are times, I will confess, that I either am engaged in something or saying something that I for a moment I think, what if Christ returned and here I am talking about somebody or here I am doing, living in light of Christ's return. I think if we did so, it would change how we live, which then would bring God's blessing and happiness, which is where I trust you want to be. I want you to enjoy life. And so we live in light of that return. So these, these are the three things that Paul prayed for as he prayed for the church at Thessalonica. Nobody's coming in. Just the door slamming. It woke up some of you. That's good. But, you know. but we need to pray for God's guidance, direction, for love to increase, and for faithfulness as we live in light of His return. And so may God help us to pray for one another in that way. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we're thankful for the direction that we receive from your word. We thank you for this prayer of the Apostle Paul for people that he dearly loved, that he was dearly concerned about. And Father, how we pray that 
as he prayed, so we would pray, that you would give us direction, that we would recognize our dependence upon you. As we think about our future and what it holds, Father, we pray that we would recognize that you are the Lord, you are our Father, you care for us, you're in control, and we can trust you. Father, we pray that our love for one another would ever be growing and that men will know we are Christ's disciples because we do have a, a love for each other. And Father, we pray that you might find us faithful to our responsibilities and duties that you give us as we live in this world and that we might live in the light of your return. So, Father, we pray that you would take these fairly simple points and we pray, Father, that you would brand them into our hearts and lives so that we would seek after these things and that we would pray for one another with regard to these things. Father, we would be mindful of Micah going to Canton later this evening. And we pray that you might bless the ministry there. We pray that you would give him liberty and help as he preaches to people that he does not know. But Father, we pray that you would use him there in their midst to do them good. Thank you for this opportunity and pray your blessing upon it. For all these things we do ask in Christ's name. Amen. On closing, let's take our Trinity hymn books and turn to 285. 285, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. 285. Let's stand together as we sing.